Am I okay? There we go. Well, I've known Johnny for about 10 years now, and uh, I remember one day us driving to lunch together and listening to the Violent Femmes. I don't know how many of you remember the Violent Femmes from high school and middle school and college. Believe it or not, that's not a Christian band, that song you just heard. That's the Violent Femmes. And uh, you don't have to stay up here, let me embarrass you. But, but I just, uh, I love that we both love that band and uh, we got to do that song today. And it fits because we're gonna talk a lot, as you heard about Noah and the flood. And uh, as we get into that, I wanna ask you to do something for a second, all right? Uh, we had people do this at the outdoor service. I won't make you stand up, but would you turn to somebody next to you, probably the person you came with, uh, if you didn't come with somebody, just somebody around you who's even a stranger, is you prepare an emergency kit, assuming you were going to go prepare an emergency kit, what are like the top three items you feel like you need to have in your emergency kit in the event of some kind of disaster happening? Would you turn and just tell somebody next to you what you would have in yours? All right. Okay, now, I, I, I'm kind of eavesdropping a little bit as I hear you talk, and uh, I heard somebody say water out there. Anybody say bottles of water? Okay, so a lot of water out there. Uh, what else did you guys, just shout out what kinds of things you heard people say. What was it? Underwear. underwear. I just heard underwear. Medications. Medications. What? Personal documents. That's good. Anything that was weird besides underwear? Uh, what was that? A CPAP for sleep apnea, yes. What else? Anything else that was kind of weird? Toilet paper. Toilet paper's not weird, man. Beer. Beer, yeah, beer. All right. Well, part of why I ask you about this is uh, a few weeks ago, I came across uh, a company named Vivos. Vivos, we'll put it up here, that is all about helping you survive the end of the world. They call themselves a backup plan for humanity. And uh, here's what Vivos' website says. We'll put that on the side screens. Whether we want to believe it or not, we are on the cusp of an increase in number and magnitude of events that may, in the twinkling of an eye, change the world as we know it. And Vivos lists a bunch of things that could happen in the coming years to screw up stuff on the planet, uh, mess up life as we know it, uh, like a pole shift of the earth, uh, super volcano eruptions. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a super volcano that's bigger than a normal volcano. Uh, earthquakes, solar flares, tsunamis, pandemics, asteroid strikes. Um, they list man-made threats, including nuclear explosions, a reactor meltdown, biological or chemical diseases, disasters, terrorism, widespread anarchy, any of these could well be on their way. And if you give Vivos a little bit of your money, you can own a spot in one of their underground Vivos shelters. When I say this, I don't mean they will put a shelter in your backyard and it will be underground. I mean, they have big shelters. You can join other people, airtight, fully self-contained complexes designed to survive any catastrophe. They put 50 to 1,000 people in an underground shelter that they have built. You join 49 other people to 999 other people. They stock it with supplies for one year so you can ride out any of that stuff we mentioned. Every detail has been considered, planned for, and all you have to do after you pay your $35,000 a person 
in advance, well in advance to reserve a spot. By the way, I watched somebody at the last service turn to their spouse and go, we can only afford one of us. Uh, $35,000 a person. All you have to do is make sure when the bad thing happens, you can get there within three days before the underground complex locks its doors. It looks like they currently have two complexes planned, one in Indiana, one in South Dakota. Good luck getting to either of those places from here in three days when the time is right. Well, it's interesting to me the lengths that people go to, some of us, to avoid disaster. It's probably smart, right? It is smart to think worst case scenario and to, to be prepared. We, we probably all do this at least a little bit. Uh, some of you have earthquake kits like we were just talking about. Uh, some of you have extra canned goods, maybe in your pantry or in your garage. Uh, some of you have a generator that has come in handy when we've had rolling blackouts. Uh, I guess all of us probably have some way that we are prepared for some worst case scenario because our imaginations get so creative and think about all the things that could go wrong. And I think part of the reason is most of us have lived through something that did go wrong. In fact, I was thinking about this. Uh, if you had a child that was born in 2019, you're gonna be able to say they were born right on the front edge of the great pandemic, COVID-19. You have all lived through this moment in time where the world, for all practical purposes, stopped. When all these world-shattering things happen, we look around and we see them and we tend to wonder why. Hurricanes, Hurricane Inn uh, uh, happened in Florida recently and closer to home, fires, right? Fires in Paradise, uh, in Santa Rosa, in the, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And we see earthquakes and we see floods. And again, the pandemic, we almost forget what it was like the first few months when you couldn't go see someone who was elderly or go see someone sick in a hospital. When those things happen, there is a question that we ask that I think people have been asking for thousands of years, actually longer, since the beginning of people. When those things happen, we ask, why? Why did this bad thing happen that destroyed lives on this earth? I know that I've asked it, and I know that you've asked it. I've, I've been listening to people as a pastor ask that question. I've been listening to people for 25 years or more now. Why did this disaster happen? And of course, there are two ways you can answer that question. There's an answer from science, uh, like inside thunderclouds when warm human air rises and cool air falls along with rain or hail. These conditions cause spinning air currents inside the cloud. And when the current turns vertical and drops down from the cloud, that's when you get a tornado. That's why. Or when underground rock suddenly breaks and there's, there's rapid motion along a fault, the sudden release of energy causes seismic waves that make the ground shake and you end up with an earthquake. Those are both answers from science, and they answer why from a science perspective, although, if you think about it, they don't really answer why. They answer how. How a tornado gets started, how an earthquake happens. No, the why question, when it's not left up to science, usually turns to religion. And over the years, we, we have heard religious people give all sorts of reasons for why bad things happen in our world. Like, in 2009, there was a terrible earthquake in Haiti. Over 200,000 people died. A 7.0 earthquake that claimed more than 200,000 lives. Men, women, and children. Children died in that earthquake, you guys. Many more kids were orphaned. Half of the population in Haiti is children with 200,000 people dying. So many kids lost their parents. And the next day, 
a Christian television broadcaster went on the air and they said, this happened because more than 200 years earlier, native Haitians made a pact with the devil that said, if you save us from the French, we will serve you, devil. And since then, they have been cursed by God. Person said, disaster happens, and it happens because God was getting back at them. Why? God. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. It left more than 1,800 people dead. Uh, one very well-known evangelical pastor in Texas said, I believe, this is quoting, I believe that New Orleans had a level of sin that was offensive to God, and they are, were recipients of the judgment of God for that. He was referring, he was referring specifically to the town's recent embrace of gay pride events, suggesting God sent Hurricane Katrina to kill 1,800 people because they celebrated their gay friends and family. Believe it or not, when September 11th happened, 2001, another famous Christian preacher went on television and said that this happened because it was God's judgment on our nation for secularizing America. And then he pointed to, and I'm quoting here, quoting pagans, abortionists, feminists, the ACLU, his words, you helped this happen. Um, later that day, he walked it back a bit and said, oh, and the hijackers and terrorists had something to do with it too. Now, I should tell you, this is not a uniquely Christian thing. Other religions leaders do the same thing. Bad things happen, they blame it on judgment from their God or their gods. And I should tell you, it's not a current thing. This has been happening for thousands of years, thousands of years. And, and as much as we might see those religious leaders who say things like that in public places, and we may disavow it when we hear it, we go, that's not my God. That's not what he does. That's like a whole different religion those TV preachers must follow. As much as you have probably not agreed with things like that when you've heard them, chances are pretty good you've had moments where you have wondered, why does this stuff keep happening? I thought that God was all powerful. Is God set on destroying the earth? And I will tell you, that is what we're talking about today. Is God to blame for the destruction that happens? And does God seek retribution by destroying his people? We're in a series on the book of Genesis from the Bible, and, and we're looking at some of the moments in Genesis, either the ones that are, that are too hard to believe sometimes or the ones that are too hard to swallow, and we're trying to give very honest answers about why those stories are there and what lessons God has in them for us and for the people who wrote this book way back then who listened to it right originally. And, and we are about to hit this moment in Genesis where we find an epic natural disaster, the story about Noah and the flood. Now, this story is so big in Genesis. It takes four chapters. It's in chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine. It is big enough. It's got a lot of words to it and a lot of details, which means there's plenty of material to pull from to ask questions about this story. Unfortunately, most of the questions we ask are wrong questions. And I'm gonna point some of those out today as we go. Uh, as we've been saying the past few weeks, we often ask Genesis for questions that its writers never meant for Genesis to be able to answer, and then we get frustrated that it's not answering well enough. Okay, it is not a modern textbook. It's an ancient story. Now, I'll just say again, when we say story, we don't mean it's not real. Um, there are fictitious stories, and then there are historical stories. It's just that you've got to read this as a story, not a science textbook. 
And what we've said is sometimes we get so intent on asking the wrong questions, we miss the right lessons in Genesis. And this morning, we're gonna try and figure out what the right lesson is in this miniature story that is part of this larger one story that is Genesis. And believe me when I tell you, there is an incredible lesson. And it comes out of these questions, again, is God to blame for the destruction that happens? And does God seek retribution by destroying his people? Now, those questions are gonna make a lot more sense once we read the story. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. Like I said, it is four chapters. Let me just tell it to you, and uh, we will zoom in on some highlights, all right? Sometime after God created the earth and it got more populated, there was a man named Noah. Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah was a good guy. Not so the rest of the world. Genesis tells us that the earth was corrupt and it was full of violence. That's important. It doesn't say simply that they were full of sin, uh, that it was a lot of lying and cheating and stealing going on. It says violence. The world was full of violence. I read that in Genesis. I try to picture it. And all that I get in my mind are scenes from Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, by the way, you could pick your favorite violent dystopian movie. You, you imagine that when you read that passage. Anyway, God sees this. And the Bible tells us that he goes to Noah and he says, I have seen all the violence and I'm gonna just end it. I am gonna destroy all the people. I'm gonna destroy the earth, all of it. But before I do, I want you to, verse 14, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. From there, God gives Noah a good amount of instructions for what this boat ought to be, how long, how wide, how high, uh, uh, needs a roof, it needs three decks in it. And then he says, verse 17, I am gonna bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. We've talked about the breath of life twice over the last two weeks. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you, Noah, will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. I am going to flood this place and kill everything but you. Why? Because, other than you, everybody else is violent. And Noah, what I want you to do before the flood you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And so Genesis 7 tells us that Noah does this. He brings every kind of creature you can imagine into this ark. And after seven days, the waters of, of the flood come up onto the earth. And then it rains 40 days and 40 nights. And the ark rose, and it floated on the water, and everything and everybody that was not in the ark died. And only Noah was left in his family. And all of them and all of the animals that were in the ark, they were in it for about a year until one day the ground dried enough that they could all get out. There's detail that I skipped over, and we're gonna talk about what happened after the flood in just a few moments. But first, can we address something important? Was there an actual flood or not? And I will tell you, it seems like there's a good amount of evidence that there was. Let's talk about it. 
Um, in the late 1920s, an archaeologist was excavating in southern Mesopotamia. Uh, this is Sir Charles Woolley. He is a regular Indiana Jones of the 1920s. Anyway, he was excavating these royal tombs belonging to a dynasty at a place called Ur. These tombs dated from 2500 to 2700 BC. So we're talking really ancient tombs. And once he was done excavating the tombs, Sir Charles Woolley decided to test the soil that was underneath the tombs. Let's figure out what was here on this land before the tombs. When you want to know what existed before the tombs, you got to look under the tombs. And so they dug a shaft under these 4,500-year-old tombs to see what was happening on the ground before the tombs were put there. And as they dug, they came to eight feet of mud, just bare mud, eight feet deep underground. Now, that in and of itself isn't that weird. But then, under the mud, a layer of artifacts under that. Okay, how, how do you have prehistoric artifacts, and then eight feet of mud, and then evidence of a, of a later civilization, these tombs? Well, you have a flood that puts all that mud there between civilizations. The same thing happened with another archaeologist at a different dig site called Kish. A few years later, it happened again at another place, Shurapak. It seems there is archaeological evidence of a pretty massive flood that covered quite a bit of land. And, and, and sure, floods happen all the time, but not of this level. We're talking a flood or floods that wiped out civilizations. Now, there's other evidence besides archaeological um, in addition to the Bible, other religions in other nearby cultures, ancient cultures, told stories of a great flood as well. And when you hear that, that might cause you to think an ancient person woke up one day, heard somebody else tell their flood story, and they said, oh, Bill has a great flood story. I'm going to come up with a better flood story. Well, that might cause you to think, yeah, all the flood stories are derivative. Well, well that might cause you to think that, most historians, they look at all these flood stories in different cultures as evidence that there was indeed a flood. And each story is that unique culture's way of explaining why this flood that they all experienced happened. Um, think for a second. If you lived back then and you had never heard of the God that we read about in the Bible, and you had your own gods, and, and maybe you had never even run into an Israelite, and there is a flood in your neck of the world, and you have to answer the question that we all ask, why? you are likely to answer that through the lens of your own religion. And this is exactly what we see. When a disaster happened in the ancient world, not unlike today, they would ask the question we ask, why? And always, always the answer to why started with their religion. One of those stories is called the Atrahasis story. And, and actually, this was the story that the Babylonians told about the Great Flood. Uh, I'll tell you the story real quick. The story goes that one of their gods, the god of weather, wants to destroy humans because they are making too much noise. For real, too much noise. Atrahasis, a human, sees the weather coming. He enlists the help of a different god, the water god, to escape his wrath by building a large boat, and Atrahasis saves humanity. Um, another story is called the Gilgamesh story. Maybe you've heard of this one. Gilgamesh is the main character. And one day, while he is on a journey, he comes across a man who's discovered the secret to immortality. And Gilgamesh says, tell me the secret. And the man says, well, I am the survivor, the sole survivor of a great flood. 
I was told by one of our gods that the other gods were going to kill all the humans. And so this god told me to build a boat and to get as many animals on board this boat as possible. And I did, and I survived the flood. Okay, the point is, when multiple civilizations and religions all start telling stories about a great flood that happened long ago in the past, historians tend to think that is evidence there must have been some flood. Now, yeah, they've all got different reasons for the flood based on their own gods and their own religions, but what they have in common was there was a flood. Now, that's not the only thing they have in common, and I'm going to show you more from those. But first, there is evidence that there was an actual flood. Now, can we talk about the story or the questions that this story in Genesis raises? Lots of questions, lots of wrong questions as we've been going through each week, all right? Um, was the flood over the whole world or was it just this area, the known world? Were there multiple floods in different regions? When God said he was gonna destroy humanity except for Noah, was it just the humans that Noah knew of or was it all humanity? Uh, when Noah put animals on the boat, how specific did he get? Did he have two dogs or two of each breed? Because if it was just a Great Dane and then a Chihuahua, uh, I don't know how we end up with all the variations we have today. Uh, my favorite question, what did the carnivores eat? Other animals? Does that in fact mean that there were more than two of each so that some could be used for dinner every once in a while? Lots of questions we can ask. And guess what? They're the wrong questions. And why are they wrong? I know I say this a lot. I'll say it again. Genesis was not written to be a modern textbook. Like, that was never the idea. It wasn't trying to explain dog breeds or weather systems. It was an ancient story meant to teach Israel some lessons. And it was heard by ancient people who had ancient understandings, and they were not asking about how we got English bulldogs. So what is the right lesson from this story? And I'm, I'm going to get to it, but before I do, can I... Can I share some other similarities between the Genesis story and, and the others? Um, all three of those that I've mentioned have a large boat with precise instructions and directions. But, but, but both Noah and the Gilgamesh story, uh, they bring animals on board as well as one family. They all waterproof the door with pitch. In all three, the boat comes to rest on a mountain. Um, they all release birds to see if the water has subsided. And all of this has led to another wrong question. Did Israel steal its flood story from other cultures? Let's put up the wrong question here. Can we, can we get that? Did Israel steal its story? Did they essentially copy the story they heard in Babylon, and did they make it their own? And I'm going to tell you why that's a wrong question. But because it's a wrong question, can I tell you why there's all sorts of bad answers or what they are? One bad answer is, yes, they did. They stole it, and they made it their own, and it's plagiarism in Genesis. Another bad answer, Israel influenced the other cultures. They took it from them. Um, another crazy answer is that the human that Gilgamesh met who is immortal is actually Noah. He's the immortal one, and the stories are talking about the same characters, but the Gilgamesh one just gets its facts wrong that Noah makes a cameo in the Gilgamesh story. Um, there are all sorts of mental gymnastics that we do to try to explain how we could have three similar stories. Why is this a wrong question? Because it assumes that the stories were written right after the flood was over. Let me say that again. 
That question assumes that the stories were written right after the flood was over. Okay, we're about to get a little bit nerdy. I don't want to lose you. Hang with me on this. It's going to be worth it. If you assume that within a day or two or even a year or two of the flood, somebody said, hey, we're on dry land. We better write down what happened last week. Then the very likely lesson in this story is we misbehaved or we were too noisy or whatever, and God or the gods were angry and they flooded the world. If within a day or two or even a year or two of a flood, we decide to tell our kids a story about the flood, then the likely lesson of the story is the flood. The lesson is the flood. Kids, do not disobey God. Don't make too much noise or God will flood us and we will all die. If the story was written immediately after the flood, that might make sense. Because of what we said earlier, when bad things happen, humans look to explain why and they point at God, Katrina, Haiti, 9-11. The closer you are to the bad thing that happened, like the next day, the more likely you are to ask why and the more likely you are to say, it's us. We disobeyed God and he sought retribution by destroying us. But what if, what if this was written hundreds or thousands of years after the flood, like in 539 BC, what we've talked about the last two weeks. What if this was written on your way home from exile in Babylon, what we said the last few weeks? What would the lesson be in a flood story thousands of years after the flood? Is the lesson still don't behave, uh, sorry, don't misbehave God or he will destroy us? Or is the lesson thousands of years later likely something else? Um, let's step away from the floods in Noah for a second, and let's talk about my daughter, Kennedy. Uh, every so often, we will be out to dinner to celebrate Kennedy's birthday. I say every so often. It's June 2nd. It's always June 2nd. I don't know why I said it that way. And uh, one of the things we will do at dinner on her birthday, she's done this a few times now, is she will ask us to tell the story of her birth. And the story is that I was at work here at Crosswinds and her mom was at home and uh, Andrea started having contractions and almost immediately when they started, they were like two minutes apart. And I freaked out and I sped home from work and I picked up Andrea and Quinn who was only four years old and we got in the car and we rushed up to Walnut Creek Kaiser. Uh, and I dropped Andrea off while I went into the parking garage to park the car, but there are never any parking spots at that Kaiser in Walnut Creek. It takes forever to park in that garage. And I finally found a spot, and I, I handed off Quinn to Debbie Merritt, who met us at the hospital, and uh, I was going to take Quinn home with her because we might have been all night long. And I gave Debbie my car key. She was going to take my car home. I ran into the hospital and up to the labor and delivery floor and Andrea was in an intake room where they were kind of giving her the runaround and, and said that they were busy and uh, they were sure she had a while till this baby was going to be born. And so we sat there waiting and waiting until I had to go find a doctor and demand that they check Andrea out because I was sure this baby was coming soon. And so they slowly, reluctantly patronizingly check Andrea to get me off their back. And the doctor says, oh, you're ready. Let's get you into a room. And no joke, five minutes later, Kennedy is born into the world. No time for an epidural. Uh, no time to even learn anyone else in the room's name. Uh, actually, no time for Debbie Merritt to start my car and take Quinn away. <laughs> and, and sometimes at dinner, 
uh, Kennedy wants us to tell that story, and we do, and we end it saying it was a crazy whirlwind of a day, and it climaxed, Kennedy, with you being born. Now, when she hears the story, she probably thinks, I was almost born in a car. I was almost born in a waiting room. My dad had to yell at people to get me into this world. There are dramatic parts of the story that we tell. But make no mistake, the point of the story, the reason we tell the story is Kennedy was born. The point of the story is not the quick labor and delivery, right? It's that Kennedy was born, especially when we tell it 14 years later. When we tell it 14 years later, we are reminiscing and we are celebrating that Kennedy was born. Okay, thousands of years after a flood, God's people sit down and they say, it is time for us to write out that part of our story. And why did they write it? Is it to say, you know, bad things happen because we sin and God gets angry? Are, are they wanting to teach their kids a lesson? Don't get God angry or he's gonna do this to you, to us. No, that's not why. Real quick, why not? Why isn't that the case? Why not teach that lesson? Because that was already understood in their world. There was no other option to explain disaster in their ancient world. Every story about something that went wrong assumed that it went wrong because a person or people disobeyed and God sent his retribution. If there was a fire to your house, you deserve it. That's the only explanation. God did it because you deserve it. Uh, there's a plague going around. Lots of people get sick and die. Oh, we don't even need to say it. We all know it's God or it's the gods paying us back for what we did. It's just assumed. It is the only explanation in the ancient world. By the way, this is not just the Israelites' mind. This is the Babylonians' mind and the Mesopotamians' mind. This is still in lots of people's minds today. Something bad happens, it is God punishing us. We do not need stories to tell us why bad things happen. We know why. We're being punished for what we did. But that is not the lesson or the reason that the flood story is in Genesis. The reason, the lesson is far different than that. And with all the similarities between those flood stories, this is where this flood story is different. This flood story is revolutionary. Because unlike the other stories, this story does not climax with someone surviving a flood. This story climaxes in this moment right here. With God saying to Noah in chapter 8, verse 21, Never again, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and, and never again. Will I destroy all living creatures as I have done? As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God says, never again will I cause this kind of disaster. And then chapter nine, the climax gets better. God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over this earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. The climax of the story is not the flood. It is the rainbow. When this story is told a few thousand years later, 
The point of the story is not, you know, sometimes God gets angry and he does things and watch out. They already thought that. The point is, when disaster happens, it is not God. Because he promised us thousands of years ago, he's not gonna do that. The point of the story is not the labor and delivery, it is the birth. You know, if we read this with our modern minds, we hear rainbow, and, and the rainbow just sounds like a, a really cute way for God to say that he is so sorry for going overboard. And that he put the rainbow there so that we could tell fables about pots of gold at the end of the rainbow and leprechauns near St. Patrick's Day or something like that. But to the ancient mind, to the ancient person, do you know what a rainbow meant? The bow was a weapon of warfare. Um, you and I think of rainbows and we think of lucky charms and the pride flag and skittles and uh, even when we think of bows in, in a bow and arrow, we think of hunters and uh, archery contests and maybe, maybe Katniss Everdeen from the Hunger Games, right? Um, we do not think of the bow as a way that you wage war against an enemy, but to Israel, oh my gosh, when they looked up at the sky, it looked like a weapon they were very familiar with hanging in the sky. And in this moment, God shows them a rainbow in the clouds, and he says, no more. I won't do this. It was God putting his bow of warfare in the sky to say, I'm hanging it up. No more warfare against my creation. And yes, humans, you are still messed up, and you are still disobeying me, and you will still sin, but I have a different strategy now for solving the problem with humanity. And we know that that's Jesus and his grace. The lesson in this story is about the rainbow, not the flood. That's the climax. And the lesson is, when disaster happens, it is not God. He promised us thousands of years ago, he has hung up his bow of warfare. There are a lot of ways that you can answer why. You can answer climate change. You can answer that we build communities in the middle of a desert. You can, you can answer that we build homes too close to the ocean, that erosion happens. You can even answer bad things happen in this world because of what we said last week, that we are no longer in paradise, remember? We are not in the Garden of Eden anymore. That's why bad things happen. But remember this as well. We also said God is always working to move us back toward paradise, and the rainbow proves it. It is just one more way he starts to show his love and his grace in the midst of our being us. What do you do with that today? Knowing that the lesson of the story isn't the flood. The lesson was our God is different from the gods of the other nations. He promises that when these things happen, it is not an act of war on his behalf against us because our God hung up his bow many, many years ago. What do you do with that? two things come to my mind. The first is, next time something disastrous happens in our world, and someone, some religious leader, rushes to attribute it to God, to point a finger at God pointing a finger at us, you can say, that's not true. I don't know what God you follow or what story you heard. Seems to me like your story ends with a flood and a boat on dry ground, but my story ends with a rainbow in the sky. God hanging up his weapon. He promises never to do that. I read the whole story, including the climax, the best part. Maybe you, maybe you will be a force in this world to help people know that when these things happen, God is not who they think he is. The second thing that comes to my mind, what do you do with this? Maybe this lesson today is just what you need to hear. 
because you've got something going on that feels like a disaster. And you have been wondering, is God punishing me? Like, is this retribution? Did I, did I do something? Is it gonna get worse because I am so whatever? And maybe today you need to know whatever you have going on, he is not destroying you. God is with you in it. And, and he is hanging up rainbows to let you know it's not him. And he is moving you back toward paradise too. I want to ask you to stand with me. I, I just want to pray for you, especially those of you going through something like that. And God, we love that you are a God with a different story, a story of mercy and a story of grace and a story of patience and a story of love. And God, I know that some of my friends here today and some of our church family are going through some things that are incredibly disastrous in their lives. And they have wondered if, if they've done something to deserve it. And, and yeah, God, we all do things that lead to, to effects, right? And at the same time, God, you are not destroying their lives. And you stand alongside them in the midst of pain and you say, I am here. And my promise is to move you back toward paradise too. And so God, I ask that you would do that. I ask that you would do that. And God, may we be a church of people who, who when we see wrong in this world, know that that is not you. You are the God who is intent on making things right. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you for coming today. Hey, real quick, um, uh, the Connection Corner's outside. Sophia and Mike will be there today. But we have Backstage Pass right after the service today. And we still have a couple slots left. If you're kind of new and want to know more about what this church is about, we're going to be in the Farm Theater starting in about 10 minutes. So, all right, we'll see you.